Welcome to Innovation Capital, presented by PatSnap. Here on Innovation Capital, we take a fresh, unfiltered look at some of the biggest topics shaping innovation today. Leave everything you know about innovation at the door, because you have now entered a universe where we turn established ideas on their head and ask the questions that fuel great innovation, growth and scalability. This is Innovation Capital. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode here of Innovation Capital presented by PatSnap. In today's episode, Ray sits down with Mason Nystrom, who's a senior research analyst at Masari, where he writes about crypto, investing, and emerging technologies. Previously, he worked at Consensus as a marketer focused on marketing strategy and its portfolio companies. He's super passionate about cold brew, writing, Web3, NFTs and all things crypto. And that is exactly what Mason and Ray talk about today. Unbelievable episode. You're absolutely going to love it. Sit back and enjoy today's interview with Mason Nystrom. Enjoy. So Mason, welcome to Innovation Capital. Really excited to have you on board today. Firstly, I want to say congrats. Uh, Myself and the team I've loved the content you're producing within the wonderful world of crypto and blockchain and DeFi and Web 3.0. So I would love to kick off with just hearing about your professional story because my roots also lie in market research and it seems like you've had a really fast rise in your career. So would love to kick off with a little bit about your background and how you ended up in the world of research and then segueing into doing research analysis within the crypto and digital assets markets, Mason. Of course. Yeah. First of all, thank you, Ray. Happy to uh, come on the pod and appreciate that uh, you've been following some of my research. As far as my background goes, my four-way into crypto started when I was doing my MBA in Hong Kong and was really just looking to work. And so joined a local cryptocurrency exchange out there uh, just really as a kind of business intern, did everything from marketing to uh, helping you know, with operations and customer support and just really loved the crypto ecosystem. This was during the 2017 run-up. And so it was just incredibly invigorating. And then decided I, I wanted to stay, came back to the States, joined Consensus, which is a global blockchain conglomerate that develops predominantly on Ethereum uh, as a marketer where I helped out with strategy for some of Consensus, many portfolio companies, as well as uh, Consensus itself. And then from there kind of uh, wanted to get more uh, deeper in, into the research side. And so I ended up joining Masari which is a data analytics and research provider. Uh, you can kind of think of us like the Bloomberg for crypto. And so I joined as a research analyst where I specifically cover Web3, which includes a bunch of fascinating trends like NFTs, social tokens, uh, and the metaverse and stuff like that. So yeah, that's, uh, that's a little bit about my background. <laughs> Brilliant. And obviously Web 3.0 is being plastered across every social media platform at the moment. It's a bit of a buzzword. Totally. Frank Mason. When I speak to folks who try defining what Web 3.0, they haven't got a bloody clue. It's a different answer. <laughs> so we'd love to just set the stage first with Web 3.0, and then we can dig into NFTs, DeFi, tokenization of everything, because I think there's lots of little subsectors. But it seems like the underlining platform is this huge shift towards Web 3.0. So it'd be great to understand the history and actually, what is Web 3.0 and, and what will it actually enable, Mason? Yeah, absolutely. So Web 3 is this broad trend in crypto 
which some people are terming like the next era of the internet. Uh, I kind of just view it as uh, the decentralization uh, or disintermediation of middlemen across the entire internet stack. And so what I mean by that is everything from your internet service provider all the way up the you know kind of value chain to the storage layers of the internet, which is like your Amazons, your Googles, uh, your Microsofts, uh, and then you know keep going up until you hit that application layer. So even including things like Spotify and uh, some of those more consumer-friendly applications that users might actually use on a day-to-day -day basis. And so it's incredibly broad, uh, which is one of the reasons that I think it gets so much, uh, so much, uh, you know buzzwords uh, on uh, on Twitter and social media and stuff like that. And it seems like you mentioned removing the middleman. So in a way, is it arbitraging value back to the original user? So the original North Star of what the internet was supposed to be? And if so, are there any great examples of early stage use cases which are actually executing right now and really giving the direct value to the direct user and the content creator? Is there anything specific which is kind of the trailblazer in the market at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that we're still predominantly in this infrastructure phase of building out you know, the necessary components that will enable greater applications to build on top of them. And so what I mean by that is currently, if you were to take something like Amazon, uh, Amazon does a lot of stuff. They have uh, a host of uh, products and services offered through AWS, everything from video transcoding for uploading files to just storing information, whether that's like, you know, providing uh, com computation power through a bunch of their data centers. And so all those individual tasks, Amazon has kind of aggregated and they are able to provide you a good cost because they have that vertical integration. But so when we take those models, whether it's like storage or computation and apply it with a web three setting, a lot of times it's just saying, hey, there's all these untapped resources, whether it's from consumer machines, whether it's from other types of data centers uh, or devices that we can connect with to build a new type of network. And at the end of the day, that just leads to direct uh, price comparison. So you can get a cheaper storage or cheaper computation on one of these Web3 protocols as compared to Amazon. And so at the end of the day, when you disintermediate or remove these, these middlemen, which you know they have to take their, their fee, you get a better product for the average consumer, whether that's a developer or an end user. So it seems like we're at the early stage building out the plumbing and infrastructure of Web3.0. Absolutely. Think, where do you think we're gonna be, Mason, by 2025, in your professional opinion? That's a great question. I think that right now we're kind of at this tipping moment or this like shelling point where I would say for the past four or five years, a lot of these protocols have been building and they've just started to kind of get to the points where they can support greater consumer demand uh, and kind of integrate into, I would say like uh, a way that can be used for your average consumer or developer. And so I think that we're going to start to see a lot more growth over the coming years. And it's going to be really just a breeding ground for not only new types of, of companies to be built, but uh, you know, new types of 
industries to kind of form around that based on things that maybe weren't possible before. Yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, you're looking at some of those foundational use cases, and I think a lot of those are being talked about right now. But some of these secondary and tertiary companies which will be born out of Web 3.0, I mean, it, it's mind-boggling where, where we could actually go with this. But So this is really forward-looking. What are some of the rabbit holes which catch your attention right now as kind of hot secondary or, or tertiary markets where it's going to make a huge impact to customer value or potentially changing or transforming industries? Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you take a broad lens and say, you know, what is the the benefits of putting all these businesses uh, as like blockchain networks? And it comes from the fact that you make them permissionless, uh, you make them programmable, and uh, at the end of the day, you also make them more secure. And so having uh, those three kind of core components allows you to build applications on top of applications. So like everything today runs on TCP, um, you know, which is just like a base internet protocol. Uh, blockchains are, you know, pr provide that same concept, but now you can build applications where people can actually capture value. And so if you're talking about something like Ethereum, uh, which is just a, a blockchain that you can program dozens of different types of applications on top of, well, then there can be applications on type, top of those applications and so forth until you get, you know, this wide array of interoperating uh, just pieces of software that really benefits businesses, consumers, uh, and uh, drastically shifts how, you know, how everything works. In terms of particular markets, what industries do you think are going to get touched the most first initially in terms of that, that phase one of commercialization and rollout? Which industry sectors where you, do you think we can experience the initial impact and, and kind of game-changing evolution? Yeah, to date, we've seen a large uh, financial uh, ecosystem develop on top of Ethereum. And so that's everything from providing you know, lending protocols so that people can get loans without an, an identity or uh, you know, needing to go to a bank to, uh, you know, new types of financial contracts that is kind of porting everything that we already do in the existing financial world, but putting it onto a blockchain network uh, and getting the benefits that come with being on a blockchain like Ethereum. So that's really been the first, I would say mainstream, uh, or not mainstream, but the first use case. The first like mainstream use case that we're really seeing is kind of on uh, the non-fungible token side with NFTs, because that's such just a, a more consumer facing uh, part of like that trend of tokenizing every asset. Okay, so that's a perfect segue into this again. I mean, it's getting absolutely butchered online through memes. <laughs> but again, when, when you speak to Joe Public, you go to the pub, you go to a bar, you go to a restaurant. If I were to ask my sister who's in tech, but doesn't really understand what an NFT is and, and the impact it will really make. So starting, starting from ground zero, What's an NFT? Sure. So an NFT stands for a non-fungible token. And I think one of the easiest explanations I can give is that it is a digital file standard for a blockchain network. So if you're going to send, you know, your sister a image of, you know, something you guys did on a family trip, or say you want to send her some document uh, that, you know, is important for her to sign, 
Well, what you're actually sending is a PNG or a PDF. And so the internet has these file standards that we use to transfer information. And in that same capacity, blockchains have file standards uh, which are used to transfer information and value. And an NFT is just one way to transfer that type of information that is unique uh, and that can come with the additional benefits of being on a blockchain network. So th th this is really interesting because we're, see, our world out here at PatSnap is the world of IP. So our, our platform is used by innovators all across the world for commercializing their IP assets, generating new opportunities, discovering new markets, and really optimizing value from their intangible assets. And as we sit today, the S&P 500, 90% of their market cap is intangible assets. It's a mixture of software, uh, domain knowledge, tacit knowledge, patents, of course, um, software capability, machine learning brands. Uh, yeah, yeah. Brands, there you go, right? It's all intangible. So if you, if you look at a big part of NFTs, it seems like the fundamental pinning is IP and a lot more, it's a lot more liquid way of transferring intangible value. So do you see it having a big impact in the patent world or the research and development world where potentially a trade secret at an EV company is then kind of baked into an NFT and that value is exchanged and transferred and, uh, and monetized in, in, in a new way, if that makes sense. So do you, do you see it having a, or, or is it going to have a quick impact in the world of classic IP? Yeah. I mean, I, I think at the broadest sense, NFTs are going to tackle dozens of types of asset classes um, and, you know, cause they can be anything from a gaming asset. They can be anything to a carbon credit or, you know, something like uh, IP, whether that's uh, patent or trademark or what have you. And so I think that the market for issuing uh, IP as NFTs is going to be huge. Uh, I haven't seen too many companies to date tackle it yet, mostly just because I think we've largely not uh, standardized around how that should be done. Um, kind of the, the most basic capabilities of some NFTs to date are providing royalties. Um, and so like that naturally fits into what you want from an IP because someone goes and uh, licenses an IP. Well, okay, if they do that as an NFT, well, now we can really easily see uh, that someone has access to that uh, specific patent or that licensing right. And then royalties can be distributed in real time, uh, which is uh, pretty powerful when you consider the existing IP system. Uh, in regards to music or uh, what other ever uh, intellectual property you're using. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, we were just spitballing literally the other week because we're out of lockdown here in the UK, so we can finally meet each other face-to-face. -face. And, and we're talking about how this could potentially really impact the world of research and development. So at the moment, if you're, if you're a great scientist at DeepMind or electric vehicle company like Tesla, you're working in R&D, you come up with a great concept, you typically file a patent to protect it, or it's an internal trade secret, and that IP is managed in a very centralized, quite slow fashion, to be fair with you. So do you, see, yeah. do you see a future state where you're going to have R&D professionals, which are democratized all across the world, working from home as contractors, they just participate in a central project, which is posted by 
say, Tesla or Spotify or Disney. And when they participate in some value within that project, that value is captured within an NFT and that provenance is always matched back to the originator. So if that product, if that idea becomes a product, then becomes sales, that value can always in some way accrue back to the original researcher who came up with part of that technology. Is it, are we potentially moving into that world? Absolutely. And I think to, to kind of like hammer that point, there's a bunch of IP, whether it's developed by universities, uh, companies that really goes unused. And uh, it's pretty hard to like, there's a few marketplaces where you can go search for that intellectual property, say it's like, a, you know, whatever, a new type of way uh, to make a battery. Uh, but like the university is, says, hey, like we have this IP, but you know, we don't have a commercial use for it. We're just going to sell it. And a lot of that value just kind of sits unused because, well, it's hard to license. It's hard to decide the terms. And so when you standardize IP creation in the form of NFT, you can build all these different models where, okay, uh, we're just going to issue this as an NFT. 1% will always come back to the university. Uh, whoever takes it next will be able to, you know, retain all commercial rights to it. And we've only just started to see uh, these experimentations and how to kind of codify IP as tokens. Um, and so I think there's going to be a lot of rapid experimentation in the coming five years. And uh, once a standard is, is figured out and someone's like, hey, this is how we're going to do all trademarks or this is how we're going to do all music rights, that's when it's really, really going to take off. Yeah, so this is really interesting because conceptually of what we just discussed right now, it sounds like a complete no-brainer, right? Because we've got the... Totally. <laughs> like it, but it's interesting, like there's two very biased guys on the on, on the call today, right? Because we're, we're in love with this world and, and you're deeply passionate about it. I'm definitely tracking it because it dovetails into a lot of the customers we serve here at PatSnap and definitely the future, a lot of the markets we operate in. But it seems like if you were just to go to your local bar or, or family gathering or catch up with friends, it seems like people still don't get it. And you know what I noticed this, Mason? When you watch certain people on YouTube, so for example, Pomp is a great guy, right? Anthony Popiano, yeah. I mean, watch his stuff. I love his stuff. I mean, he's his He's one of the, the, I would say, like seminal voices in crypto today. Yeah, he's an absolute beast. He's a savage. Then you've got Raul Powell, who's amazing <laughs> at Real Vision. I'm a Real Vision. Yep. I love what Raul and the team are doing there. But it's Likewise. when I consume this content, if you look at the views or the number, number of people dialing in, Mason, the numbers are not big. Sometimes it's like 3K, maybe 1,000 people. It's sometimes, obviously, you had Elon and Jack Dorsey the other day and Kathy Wood, all three amazing minds. They topped out 404,000, I think, yeah. like on YouTube. And that, that was good. But for the other folks who are brilliant minds and producing brilliant content like you guys are at Masari and, and your work, the volume is still low. So it makes me think, are we like this really niche community who think we're actually big and we're still really, really early? Does that make sense? Yeah, it's definitely a niche community. I mean, I don't know many people who uh, get excited about talking about IP and tokenizing it. So I would say it's definitely uh, relatively early. And as far as like, uh, you know, Bitcoin is is like kind of obviously the, the leading dog in the race in terms of uh, mindshare, whether it's like from 
uh, the average consumer, or if you're looking at businesses that are now starting to put Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And that that's kind of just a necessary, natural first, I would say, like, if you call it hurdle that people have to climb, or uh, just kind of reframing in terms of value that people have to get through. And so once that hurdle is climbed, then it really opens up. And I, and I think, you know, we're, we're rapidly getting there. And, you know, people are uh, questioning less the value of Bitcoin. And so I think the, the fact that that uh, battle is, is kind of won is really uh, just going to bring a lot more people naturally into crypto, especially now as we get to these different ecosystems that are popping up, whether that's decentralized finance, whether that's NFTs or, you know, the metaverse. And so the fact that you now have all these niches, I think is slowly going to bring more people in. And that is going to, uh, you know, just massively expand the total addressable market. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing those numbers go up on some, because it's interesting, interesting, the actual views and people joining a session sometimes is a nice proxy to where we are in, in, in the hype cycle. So yeah. I akin it to maybe the world of software as a service or cloud software that 12 years ago was considered, oh, on-premise to cloud, yeah, cloud maybe, but <laughs> look where we are with the cloud right now in 2021, right? It, it's a dominant force. So, so that hurdle of other industries really getting involved and participating, so you get this kind of exponential convergence which we are seeing in many markets especially in the area of life sciences and material sciences but that convergence phase where you get other industries really diving into the world of DeFi, web 3.0 the underlying technologies where do you think we are in that cycle in terms of maturity and and that kind of venn diagram collaboration yeah i mean crypto is very cyclical in nature so like bitcoin's obviously kind of the the first, uh, the leading cycle. And then you tend to think, or like, at least I tend to think that, you know, if you have Bitcoin is kind of like, say it's in, it's, it's past its early adoption phase, wherever it is, you have like another cycle behind that is decentralized finance. And then NFTs are another cycle behind that. And then maybe something like social tokens of the metaverse or another cycle behind that, kind of just in that early adoption phase. And so, uh, you know, we're still seeing growth. Um, DeFi is is rapidly evolving. The, you know, total value locked in these protocols continues to grow. In regards to NFTs, I kind of use OpenSea, which is the largest NFT marketplace as a proxy. They just had their best month uh, in July and July is not even over. And so like there's still continued growth. Um, and it's just a matter of, of how fast does that growth come uh, and where does it come from? So, so, Thanks for the overview on NFTs. I think that was really clear. Now, another fast-moving segment is DeFi, which is basically the, it seems like it's going to hugely disrupt the banking world and traditional finance. What is DeFi, Mason? Because again, <laughs> I see so many explanations and, and, and sometimes that can get confusing for many folks. So in its first principles, what, what is DeFi? Yeah, at, at the first principles, it's taking the core aspects of finance, whether that's lending, whether that's uh, sending value, um, you know, speculation, and putting them onto blockchain networks. And you get those same benefits that we kind of talked about uh, with Web3 in the sense of, well, you're uh, disintermediating, uh, disintermediating intermediating the middlemen. So when you remove them, you can provide better terms. Uh, you're creating a system that is more transparent 
So for example, stable coins are probably the killer app of decentralized finance right now. And uh, what you can do fascinatingly with stable coins is you can audit the entire money supply of say a USDC, you know, by looking at one wallet address. That is something that is unheard of in terms of like the traditional financial system. You can see the leverage that's in the system, how many people are uh, taking loans, the collateral ratios, all this information because it's built on blockchain networks is readily available, which gets rid of kind of the, the dark markets that we see in the, the legacy financial system. And so it's so powerful when you think about all those fundamental things that it, it can really disrupt. That space seems to move so quick. If you look at DeFi Pulse, the value locked in compared to say even like 18 months ago, it's off the charts. Why do you think that's moved so quickly? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, part of it is we've, in the past year, uh, Compound, which is one of the leading money market protocols where you can uh, deposit your collateral and see interest on it, or you can take a loan uh, as long as you over collateralize the loan, uh, launched a token last February, I want to say. And uh, it kind of just acted as this catalyst moment where uh, you could really jumpstart your ecosystem because you could use your token to incentivize people to deposit capital. And so every DeFi protocol we've seen to date has used uh, this kind of liquidity mining uh, in some form of another, which is, has really just been rocket fuel on growing the amount of capital that has come into the ecosystem. And then you combine that with you know, the, the increasing desire for investors to find yields uh, outside of equities uh, and crypto has kind of become a, a breeding ground for that as well. So, so that's brilliant. We've got a, some great context in the world of NFTs and DeFi. One space which is crazy, and I've actually ordered the Oculus Quest 2. It was, it was recommended by a fellow Pat Snapper here. <laughs> Just to... I want to persuade the rest of my family, like we are entering this world. So my son's like three years old. And I always say to my wife, honey, the way we grew up, our son's not growing up that way. Like if you, if you watch films like Ready Player One, which I absolutely love, I do see a world like that. It's quite sad in a way, but probably has many benefits as well. So, so in terms of the metaverse, yeah, like that just seems... It's just crazy when, when you try explaining it to folks. But in reality, beyond the hype and all the Hollywood hype when you watch films like Ready Player One, firstly, what is the metaverse? And in terms of its cycle, where are we? And where do you see it by, say, say within the next eight, nine years? Yeah, that's a great question. And the metaverse, I would say because it is so, so nascent, so young, it really doesn't have a great definition, but I term to view it as like a, a an aggregation of all the digital space that we have. So if you include VR, if you include just being on your desktop, if you include AR, like it's this combination of this shared digital space that we're increasingly going to work in, live in, and, and spend a lot of time in, um, and other good aspects of it that I've seen are that it's going to be synchronous, meaning that it is all going to be happening at the same time, rather than, you know, a lot of the world's 
we live in, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, like those are happening asynchronously. And so this concept that everything is going to be happening at the same time uh, is another big part of it. And then I like to think of the last important really crux of the metaverse is this concept of digital ownership, where you're going to own a lot more of your online presence, uh, whether that's in form of like the assets or social capital or whatever it is. Um, and so that, that's kind of like how I view it at a glance. As far as the stage, I, I think we're in the very early stages. There's still a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built out for the metaverse. Uh, you know, one of the core concepts is that it's going to, you know, interoperate so you can go from one ecosystem or one world to the next. And we're still not at that point. So uh, it's definitely a really exciting space that I, I think is going to see tremendous growth over the next decade. Yeah. This space, it has my mind boggling. I think someone put it like this, literally, I can't recall who. But we talk about flat to slow GDP growth, right, across various nations and certain parts of the world. Mm -hmm. We're potentially looking at, if, if the metaverse really fulfills its promises, a whole new universe of GDP, which government... Absolutely which governments are not even ready for because A, they don't really understand what the metaverse is. A, how do you track that and, and follow it and, and appropriately tax it? So it seems like it will just open up this whole explosion of economic growth that I think many organizations are not even thinking about or even factoring in, in terms of raw GDP growth within certain markets. Yeah, so, no, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Yeah, it's and uh, yeah, so go for it, Mason. I'll just say I think like adding on to that point, like a lot of I think where that economic growth is is going to come from is this shift in how we perceive value. And so, like you you noted how like uh, your children are not going to grow up the same way that we did. Like my cousin, who's maybe a decade younger, isn't growing up the same way that I did. And, you know, so he spends a lot of time in, in Fortnite and he looks at these uh, digital skins in Fortnite, which are essentially just digital fashion. And he sees that as incredibly valuable. It's a way to express himself. Uh, and it's something that, you know, he perceives as having value just as like I perceive Bitcoin as being a store of value. And so that shift in value is going to create so many opportunities that I think are going to be really hard to predict. This, this is crazy. You're seeing it in sports right now. So I think there's an organization called Chili's. I don't know if that name rings a bell as a, as a protocol, yeah. right? And, and they've got all the major sports clubs. I'm a big soccer fan, so English Premier League and, and obviously the European Champions League, which I follow here in the UK. But I know the, I know the equivalent's happening with the NBA, the NHL. And I was actually talking to someone who leads a, a leading cricket academy. So cricket's a a UK based sport, Mason. So probably, you probably not. Yeah, I can't say I uh, can't say I watch too much cricket. <laughs> it's, it's huge in Europe. But when I mentioned cricket to anyone from North America, they're like, "What? We know baseball." But, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, base, I, cricket's probably better than baseball. Baseball yeah. is for it. <laughs> so, so, and you and, I, and and I know someone operating one of these fast moving leagues, and you're saying I'm getting approached by so many folks around tokens and community tokens, and he goes. I just don't get it. And I was like, and we, we're similar age. But it's, it's to your point. I think culture 
in a way is becoming an asset class. So again, when I speak to my nieces and nephews who are 12, 13, 14, their perception of value is so different from my generation or even a generation behind me. So I, I just think a lot of organizations don't even really understand the underlining value principles a lot of this a lot of this technology so so my question is like on that education curve do you see people getting their arms around this new world of perceiving value in a different way or 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 do you think large organizations people with big balance sheets are are missing a trick i think large organizations are always skeptical um and they're hesitant to you know build their systems on technology that they're unfamiliar with. But we've slowly started to see some organizations kind of dip their toes into, you know, various aspects of crypto. Um, For example, like SoRare, which is a uh, fantasy uh, soccer football, uh, you know, card game where you can purchase like individual cards that have, you know, different rarities, and then you can compete for fantasy prizes. They have their own league that people can compete in. And Ubisoft is, is now actually partnered with them to develop their own league uh, using their cards. And so I think that there's going to be all these types of partnerships that existing brands can use to really leverage their brands to make more money. And that's what you've seen with Chili's. You see all of these different uh, sports clubs, which are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And they're saying, hey, like if this is a better way to increase fan engagement, uh, to connect with our fans more, that's going to be more valuable for us. That's going to create more value for our brand. And if we get a cut of whatever this revenue is, then that's a monetization platform that is going to be incredibly powerful. Have you got any specific examples of clubs or franchises who are doing this well and and, and some of the new additional pieces of value they're, they're, they've been able to offer their followers, their community, their fans? Yeah. So, I mean, Chili's broadly has social tokens, which are essentially, they call them fan tokens. And if you own a a certain percentage of them, then you can, uh, you know, receive special perks, whether that's like getting to meet players or getting to go to specific games. Um, Socios did a a really cool pilot where they, there was like a, uh, uh, not an intramural league, but a just, uh, Non, non-competition non league, I forget the term. but And so they let the fans vote on which position the players are going to play from their respective teams based on, you know, if you had fan tokens. And it was really fascinating because, like, that's such a unique experience that a fan can be part of that no one would have thought about, you know, even five years ago. And so the more – and this experimentation is happening across, you know, lots of different clubs – uh, across various sports. And so it, it's really just starting. And I think it's going to uh, really open up a lot of value for especially the largest brands, but also some of the smaller markets too. That's crazy. So enabling your community and fans to vote on where certain athletes play in, in soccer, is it right back, left back, right wing? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Th- that's a revolutionary way to get your community to participate in a and club. I think uh, yeah and I think so in that exhibition match the team that was fan voted uh, in terms of positions beat the one that wasn't 
Uh, and so it's going to be really interesting to see if we can get some uh, wisdom of the crowd play out. Maybe the fans actually know as much as the coaching staff. <laughs> Holy shit, you're disseminating the, the, actual, the actual manager. <laughs> potentially, potentially. I think we're a long ways from that, but, uh, but there's going to be really cool experiments like that that, that play out. You could have a, I can imagine a future league where X number of clubs are a classic model where the coach makes the final call. And then you've got a few clubs which the fans run it. Let's see who wins the yeah, league. And, That's crazy. And this isn't a new this isn't a new concept either, but it's just so much more powerful because you have blockchain networks that make it it's so much easier. So the Green Bay Packers, which are an American football team, they have a percentage of fan ownership, uh, equity ownership in the sports club. And so like that's happened for decades. Uh, but now we're gonna get to this point where it's going to be so much easier for any team to do something like that and offer better uh, experiences for the fans um, and potentially the players. We'll see how they incorporate uh, them into it as well. So, so oh God, this one we could talk about for hours. So <laughs> NFT, DeFi, the wacky, insane world of the metaverse. See Another space, this is the final pillar, which I, and I hope you agree this is one of the other core pillars, the tokenization of everything. So you're now seeing unique ways to tokenize and democratize the purchase of say commercial real estate or other asset class, other asset classes which regular people can't participate in because of it's only reserved for say high net worth individuals or people who are kind of meet the criteria in the US as, as an authorized investor. So firstly, what is tokenization and what are some of those innovative use cases that you're seeing right now within the marketplace, within the tokenization? Yeah, I mean, a, a, creating a token on a blockchain uh, is kind of just like back to the file format. It's just a way to transfer value and information on a blockchain like Ethereum. And so there's tokens for, uh, you know, all types of assets that are native to blockchains like uh, Ether, which is Ethereum's native token. Uh, stable coins are, you know, another token. And then you have kind of the more unique tokens, some of which we've already discussed, like trading cards and, uh, and IP. And really every asset that can be tokenized is going to be tokenized. Uh, that is what we've been seeing across all financial assets. And we're seeing even the existing financial assets, whether they're like stocks that are getting tokenized versions so that people who maybe don't have access to the New York Stock Exchange or uh, certain markets can now get access. And that's really powerful because now you're just globalizing all these types of different assets, which opens up the potential for investment, uh, but also really helps you know, just give access to people who might not have had it. Uh, one of the things I, I hate the most in the US is what you mentioned before, US accredited investor laws, where you have to make a certain amount of money in order to invest in startups or asset classes. That yeah. Was, and it's like, it drives me mad. I think it's so archaic. Totally. And it's like the, the government says, Hey, like gambling's okay, but uh, you know, the startup thing, I don't know about it. And it's maddening because you're, you're locking out a so much capital for companies that they can get access to. Uh, but you're also, you know, really harming the average consumer who should be able to invest their money how they see fit because that's just going to yield better results. So in terms of 
early organizations and companies who are trailblazers within the world of tokenization, uh, tokenization of assets. Is there any particular trailblazers which we should keep an eye out on? That's a good question. I think it really just depends what context you look at tokenization from. So I, I would say generally there's a spectrum of tokenization in the most regulatory friendly way possible versus tokenization in, uh, let's say, like a regulatory gray environment. And so TokenSoft is one company that has done really well with uh, security token offerings. So taking like traditional securities and issuing them as tokens on Ethereum or other blockchains. And then we have other uh, companies or exchanges that kind of operate in more gray markets like FTX, which has created a, a list of tokens for uh, dozens of equities uh, and new types of financial products as well. And everything in between, most uh, NFT marketplaces let you tokenize whatever type of content you want. And so really this, this tokenization is such a commodity layer when we talk about blockchains and cryptocurrency that you can, you can do it from almost anywhere. And so, so thank you for that overview. So it looks like we've covered some, some core pillars there, which will be front of mind for our audience. Now to more of a broader area. So one mega space that we operate in here at PatSnap is enabling our customers, Mason, to track exponential convergence across various markets. So we have so many customers who might be operating in sensor technology, but there's opportunities within other subsectors which enable their subsector. So for example, let's look at what Virgin Galactic, Galactic have done literally two weeks ago. You look at that project, which was pretty much 18 years. A lot of that was enabled via exponential, an exponential acceleration across a number of different disciplines. So material sciences, AI, robotics, and then, all of those areas converging to enable potential space exploration at a suborbital level, right? And that's just one example. And obviously Blue Origin done something similar. Yeah. Do, you, do you see similar convergence effects happening where the world of blockchain, decentralized ledger technology, some of the spaces that we've touched upon, DeFi, tokenization, and some of those other big areas, converging into other markets? And if so, is any movement happening around that right now? And what does that future state look like as some of those early opportunities? Oh, most definitely. I mean, at, at the end of the day, blockchains, uh, because they're open source in nature, have been able to innovate at such a rapid rate because everyone is working on you know either the same problem or building out infrastructure that benefits everyone else. And so you just have this compounding effect of innovation, which is incredibly powerful, especially as we talk about it in, in a longer time frame. As far as how and what other markets, you know, kind of blockchains are being used for, I mean, it, it's really, there, there's pilots in almost any industry that you name, whether it's supply chain, whether it's trade finance, whether you're looking into, you know, music or uh, more infrastructure components, of you know what any company might do, whether that's like databases or cloud software. So I mean, every industry is is really getting touched in some form of another in in the long term. Is anything pure? Obviously, we're looking at music there. The more consumer applications, 
anything exciting in traditional heavy industry like manufacturing or say manufacturing 4.0 is it is there anything on, on that side of the market which which grabs your eye you know uh, that's not really a sector i cover too much but i would say that the you know at the end of the day a blockchain is kind of an automation tool so it, it lets you streamline document processing or uh you know managing a a list of uh any sort of like digital assets whatever that is whether that's you know uh, something that is native uh or something that uh, is is like an external uh data source that your company doesn't create on its own so i think there will definitely be use cases but um it that's not a sector that's at the forefront of of my uh perspective okay. thanks and and now more to valuation. So this world, Lord knows how the the actual <laughs> valuation model is. It, it it doesn't make much sense to be fair with you, Mason. I know you guys are like the Bloomberg of this space, and thank God you guys are here because <laughs> a lot of what you guys are doing there at Masari is brilliant. You're laying the plumbing to enable um, professional investors, um, semi-professional investors, to get their arms around some of the valuations of these protocols, because all of them are, I mean, they're pre-revenue. I think you guys published something where you're finally, thank God someone's doing it. You're tracking the actual revenue for some of these. Yeah, companies. it's- What is what most- It slips my mind, you guys have launched a sub portal which tracks that at Masari. Yeah, we have uh, some data that shows revenues of protocols. Uh, we try and map out also like the fully diluted supplies of a lot of these protocols because one of, I'd say the biggest misconceptions with uh, enthusiast investors or semi-professionals is that the circulating market cap that you see is how much the valuation is when in reality, it's the fully diluted market cap that you need to look at because that is the valuation that some company has to grow into. And so... Uh, without a doubt, some of these protocols are uh, overvalued in the, the present time. And of course, like if some of them end up doing really well, then they'll be undervalued in, in today's time frame. But uh, for the most part, valuation is, is really nuanced and really difficult. I mean, what, I mean, obviously, look at the classic world of value investing, where they use the classic discounted cash flows. Now everyone's talking about valuation in Metcalfe's law and network effects, but that still sounds quite, I get it, but it's still fluffy. Like what framework has got real substance behind it? Is it a mixture of Metcalfe's law and, and a couple of other frameworks? Because at the moment it, it's super confusing. Yeah, I mean, people are kind of trying to find the metrics that matter most. So some people do use similar like price to sales ratios for the protocols that do have revenue. Others are looking at usage numbers as like a, a monitor of growth to help factor in valuation. But I would say for the most part that there's no seminal uh, metric that can be used to value most crypto assets because at the end of the day, some of them are competing for different things. So if you look at like Bitcoin, it's competing to be non-sovereign money versus you know, maybe like an individual DeFi protocol is just competing on the lending side. And so like those two things can't be compared uh, apples to apples or apples to oranges or, you know, it, it's vastly, they're vastly different uh, valuations for both of those 
protocols. So, so just wrapping up in terms of the macro view, where do you think we are by 2026 across some of these core pillars like DeFi, NFTs, Web 3.0? Do you think by 2025, 2026, we're at that curve where we're seeing mass adoption and it's kind of eating into all the industries that we've touched upon today? What's your prediction? Yeah, I would say that across DeFi, there will be some major institutions within like the next five years that are allocating capital to these protocols, whether that's Compound or Maker or something new that, that pops up. Uh, I think that every you know consumer-facing uh, brand will be looking at NFTs or will be experimenting or or have experimented in some capacity uh, in order to drive and increase their monetization. And I, I think the Web3 side is kind of the hardest thing to predict uh, because, you know, there's, there's so much happening, but I, I think the infrastructure will be managing a, uh, a significant capacity of whether it's data storage or computation uh, from some of the existing players in the market today. We've talked about the core pillars, the areas of DeFi, um, tokenization, and, and some of those other areas. But is there anything which is off piece, which has caught your imagination, an area which no one's talking about or hasn't received much hype and you think is going to be huge and, and can drive a lot of value? Is there any emergent spaces which uh, have grabbed your imagination and you think will be big? That's a good question. Um... To be honest, I think the the answer to that is it's something that nobody's thought of yet or that uh, I'm unaware of and that hasn't really surfaced. I think that one of the pretend, potentially like easier things is that there will be aspects of uh, existing sectors that get bigger than anyone ever thought. And, and so I think that's uh, something that I think about uh, more so. Are you guys doing anything there at Masari to look at those emergent left field markets and seeing how they potentially could converge into the core markets and trying to build out a predictive model? Is that something you guys are exploring? Because that would be a, an awesome part of your capability if you guys can build some, some form of weak signal detector to kind of yeah you know, look down different rabbit holes. I think that would be that would be stunning if you guys could shape something like that. Yeah, to, to be honest, I think that we're uh, predominantly, I'm sorry, working on building out this infrastructure for uh, the blockchain networks of the future, rather than looking at the integration of maybe like, you know, existing institutions into uh, crypto, because we believe that permissionless blockchains are like society is going to run on these permissionless blockchains in the future. And so we think that the value there is going to be much greater than bridging existing institutions into uh, crypto. Okay, brilliant. Well, Mason, a bit of a, a final wrap-up now, a bit of a, a fun freestyle round. So, yeah. extraterrestrial life, believer or non-believer and why? I, I'm totally a believer. I don't see how, on a statistical basis, we could be the only intelligent life in the galaxy. Okay, and and... Considering the space that you're in, apart from the great content that you publish, 
any any books you can recommend to our audience in terms of this space or adjacent spaces for them to get their arms around this new world we'll hopefully be living in? Yeah, one of my favorite authors is Morgan Housel, uh, who's a, a venture capitalist at Collaborative Fund. He writes a weekly blog on their website, and uh, he came out with a book last year called The Psychology of Money. And it's a great book, really easy read, uh, and just kind of takes you through different stories about you know, how individuals perceive money differently and how they interact with it. And so definitely a, a great read for anyone who uh, invests uh, as an enthusiast or professionally. Okay, thank you. And I can't help myself. Bit of a, a direct question and probably a question you probably get all the time. Obviously, the price action has been crazy this year with BTC and Ethereum. Where do you think we are going to be with, say, Bitcoin and Ethereum by Christmas? By Christmas? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, uh, I would say uh, not financial advice. Of course. Um, <laughs> but uh, I am uh, a long-term buyer of Bitcoin and Ethereum. I'm incredibly bullish on both those. And so, uh, you know, I think the best strategy is continue to dollar cost average every week. And I don't think you'll be upset in, uh, by Christmas or any date after that. Yeah, it seems like a, a no-brainer in terms of asset allocation, in terms of those two fast-moving horses, for sure. Yeah. And really quick, asset allocation is like one of the most important parts about any portfolio. Uh, it's not timing and uh, it's just what assets are you in? And so uh, definitely something to think about. I'm sorry, we'll wrap this into the session as well, but actually I've got something on my mind, which again is driving me nuts. If you look at the world of academia, so looking at all the curricula across all the major universities, even high schools in the UK, we call it secondary school. A lot of this isn't even baked into the curricula at schools in terms of learning about this space. I think a lot of young minds have to go off piste and go online to kind of different portals or different education portal, portals or, or consume content like yours to get excited about this new world. Do you, think we're, do you think we're missing a trick there where we're not formalizing a lot of this knowledge and, and baking it into kind of a lot of the learning curriculums at junior school, high school, universities? You don't, I don't see anything like that at the moment. Oh, absolutely. I think it is a disservice to society that kids don't learn about finance, uh, at least in the US, uh, at any point really in school. And I mean, even like I was a, a business major in my undergrad, did my MBA and uh, the way we teach and what we teach, I think is, is vastly um, underrepresentative of where the world is going. It's always where the world has been and that has to change. And I'm so excited about new types of education, uh, you know, stuff like Lambda School, which allows people to uh, gain some sort of skill set and not take fifty thousand to two hundred thousand dollars worth of debt out uh, to get a degree. And so, I edtech is something that I think is going to be an incredibly massive trend over the next two decades. Um, and I'll be really curious to see, uh, you know where my kids end up going uh, and how they end up learning, whether they go to college or whether they do something that is newer uh, at that time. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that organization. There's an organization in the UK, Mason, called Metaverse. It's probably enough called Metaverse, where <laughs> they've completely reimagined the classic apprenticeship 
which was quite big in the UK in the 80s, 90s, but considered was considered psychologically as a fallback position. But now they're going to major brands, the likes of the big four accountancy firms, big four consulting firms, engaging their leadership, their HR leadership, and they're signing up some huge names who are saying, actually, there's amazing bright minds who don't go to your typical red brick or Ivy League university. Let's just get them at 18 and, and build a yeah. bigger curricula so they can operate in a McKinsey or a Deloitte and, and actually ramp faster and actually perform better. So I couldn't agree with you more. I think education is, is not even being touched by technology innovation in the last 20, 30 years. It's hugely underserved. But fingers crossed will change a lot in the next 10 to 15 years. Yeah, big, big tech is for sure uh, going to be looking at the margins in the education world and say, hey, I think we can do better. Yep. I mean, you're already seeing that. I actually think that there's a few of the big tech players who just have their own configured customized, customized university. I, I think Google already do this. Yeah, with their certifications and stuff. Yeah, and they go, look, come get come here at 18, 19. You don't have to go to college. We'll just groom you for a spectacular career at Google where you can have a tour of duty around all our different companies. So and I think that's, that's so much more of a thoughtful way of uh, getting yourself ready for your career and being able to perform. So, yeah, it's definitely a space that we serve here at PatSnap and we're, we're keeping a close eye, close eye on for sure. Yeah, love it. It's uh, if I wasn't working in crypto, ed tech would would potentially be next on deck. Brilliant. Thanks. Well, Mason, I've really enjoyed our exchange today. It's been a, a bit of a, a roller coaster around the wonderful world of digital assets and crypto. So I think it'll be super valuable to our audience. So Mason, pleasure as always, and hopefully we can catch up for part two some point next year. Thanks, Ray. And yeah, let's definitely do it. Cheers. Nice one. And that is it for today's episode, everyone, with Mason. First of all, I want to thank Mason for taking time out of his schedule and sharing his wisdom and knowledge with us here today. If you've listened to this podcast or if it's your first time, thank you so much. We hope to continue to bring you amazing guests and drop amazing value here on this podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode with Mason, we ask you, please hit that subscribe button. Share this out with a colleague who you feel like would really enjoy today's interaction with Ray and Mason. And if you listen to the whole podcast, thank you so much. And for doing so, we here at PatSnap want to do something for you. And if you are wanting to spark an impactful discussion around innovation within your organization, then we have an amazing offer for you. You can download your free copy of our free ebook, The Connected Innovation Intelligence Blueprint. In this report, we explore what connected innovation intelligence is and how the world's top disruptors are using it to grow, compete, and win in a hyper competitive world and to grab your free copy of the innovation intelligence blueprint all you have to do is go to patsnap.com forward slash blueprint again that is patsnap.com forward slash blueprint again thank you so much for listening to today's episode we'll be back soon with another one until next time continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious